Turn your Bibles to James chapter 4. And I'd like to begin in verse 1 and just read this section of Scripture for us to contemplate. What's the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? And therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires a spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. And let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this little book of James, which is so powerful, so black and white. It's hard not to understand what you are addressing. Thank you that James wrote boldly, and thank you that we will someday meet James, brother of Jesus. Lord, we pray that you'd open our own hearts today to the teaching from your word, and Father, that we might be receptive and responsive, that we might take these things and apply them to our our very lives, Lord, so that change might come about. Challenge us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, James is continuing his admonition about earthly wisdom. We talked about the war within and the source of quarrels and conflicts and so forth and so on. And that was also an illustration of worldly wisdom. Back in chapter 3, beginning in verse 13, we talked about the wise and understanding and verse 14 says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't be arrogant and so lie against the truth. That wisdom is not that which comes down from above, which is heavenly, but is earthly, natural, and demonic. And then he goes on and he explains what that looks like, and he continues it. He continued it with verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4, and then he continues on through 4 through 10 and gives us more illustrations of this. But he delves even deeper than last week when we went to the war within into the motivations of the heart that persist in the uncharacteristic behavior of so-called brothers and sisters. You remember there's two things going on here. He's writing to an assembly of believers, a local church like Beacon of Hope. But there are, it's a mixed multitude. There are unbelievers there. Obviously, 
In James 4, 1 through 3, James called them out from the assembly by identifying some of the traits that characterize their lives. As quarrels and conflicts and lusts and murder, envy, all with the source being the wrong motive. And what was the motive? To satisfy their own selfish pleasures. That is not the mark of a believer. That's not the way believers roll. Do we slip sometimes and fall into that? Of course we do. We're sinners, saved by grace, but that is not the characteristic of our lives. Now, James goes even further, identifying them as adulteresses, lovers of the world and enemies of God, none of which could be true of any believer, a bona fide believer, not on a consistent basis or marked as a characteristic in their life. And so it's obvious that James is letting the believers know there were professors, not possessors, in their midst. Now today I want to talk to you a little bit about two more characteristics of earthly wisdom being worldliness and pride. We will only get to worldliness today, guaranteed. (laughs) Just guaranteed. But I trust that God will use his word to open up our eyes. Worldliness may not be what you think it is. In the Old Testament, God assured his people, Israel, of his love for them by describing himself as her husband, just like Jesus calls himself the groom and we're the bride. For example, the prophets said of Judah, your maker is your husband, the Lord Almighty is his name, the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth in Isaiah 54, 5. Now, this was in the context of God warning Judah, the southern kingdom, not to follow the footsteps of the northern kingdom, referred to as Israel, in their idolatry and adultery, spiritual adultery. Because if Judah persisted in the rejection of Yahweh and worshipped idols instead, there would be consequences to pay. Yahweh described Judah's infidelity as spiritual adultery. Adultery, not idolatry. And Yahweh went as far as to use a picture of divorce due to Israel's unfaithfulness in Jeremiah 3. He says this of Israel, the northern kingdom, I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce. (laughs) He divorced her. And sent her away into captivity because of all her adulteries. Because Israel's immorality mattered so little to her. She defiled the land and committed adultery with stone and wood. Well, you know he's talking about spiritual adultery, right? If it was committed with stone and wood. Talking about idolatry. In spite of all this... Her unfaithful sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but only in pretense, so she faked it. And finally, unrepentant Judah was taken away into captivity for 70 years in Babylon. The Jews were so chastened by that experience of captivity for their idolatry and spiritual adultery that she never returned to idolatry after that to date. But spiritual adultery? Yes. The Amplified Bible translates 
James 4, 4 like this. You are like unfaithful wives, having illicit love affairs with the world and breaking your marriage vow to God. Do you not know that being the world's friend is being God's enemy? So whoever chooses to be a friend of the world takes his stand as an enemy of God. Again, not the mark of a believer. But believers can be afflicted with this same type of behavior, just not consistently. Adulteresses. The unfaithful behavior of a marriage partner breaks their marriage vow in the same way God views the unfaithfulness of those who claim to be his children, but who do not live like it. If you see a man that you know is married, maybe somebody from church, at a restaurant with another woman, and it's obvious that they're romantically involved, you would be shocked. His infidelity would shake your confidence in his Christian testimony, at least, right? And don't think that that is not exactly the way God looks at friendship with the world. Spiritual adultery. This is exactly what James is calling out in their assembly. And he's telling the believers in the assembly to look out for those people that are living like this on a consistent basis. And don't think that such spiritual adultery was only an Old Testament problem. Jesus rebuked those who said they desired to follow him, but were unwilling to deny themselves and the lives that they were living were in pretense because he said this, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, speaking to the Jews, the religious Jews of that day, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The condition of spiritual adultery is the behavior of one claiming to be united with Christ but committing adultery with the world. William Barclay explains spiritual adultery like this. It means that to disobey God is like breaking a marriage vow. It means that all sin is sin against love. It means that our relationship to God is not like the distant relationship of a king and their subjects or a master and their slaves, but like an intimate relationship of a husband and a wife. It means that when we sin, we break God's heart as the heart of one partner in a marriage may be broken by the infidelity and desertion of the other partner. There's intimacy here. Now, as though such a thought is not heavy enough, James goes on from calling them adulteresses to use another analogy of friendship. Talks about being friends with the world. Friendship's a wonderful thing. And it's typically based on shared values and enjoyment of doing things together. Affinity is an important element in friendship. Can two walk together unless they be in agreement? And it only stands to reason that when James tells his readers friendship with the world is hostility toward God, he's stating the obvious, right? 
You have two opposing sides here. Jesus taught no man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to one and despise the other. He cannot serve God and wealth. The principle is one relationship naturally cancels out the other. You see how clear James is. He's like John in the epistles of John. He's just like, it isn't hard to understand. In both passages of worldliness addressed there, turn turn real quick with me to John. 1 John chapter 2. It'll only take a second. 1 John chapter 2, because this is a parallel verse and or verses, and they're important to us. First uh, John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17 says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. So kind of keep your finger there. You can kind of go back and forth because in both passages, the idea of worldliness is addressed. And James speaks of friendship with the world and John admonishes us not to love the world. Now there are not many pulpits that preach about worldliness today. It seems that that's a message from the past, right? Some of us are old enough to remember Messages on worldliness. At one time in evangelical history, the idea of worldliness got much more time, much more space in pulpits. But even then, sadly, the idea seemed to be more concerned with external marks of worldliness, like the clothes that you wear or a list of do's and don'ts, right? And the don'ts are a good Christian does not dance, A good Christian does not play cards and definitely does not go to movies. Okay, so we're out of there. The whole church. I've seen most of you dance already, so. (laughs) Heaven forbid I should see you going into the movie theater, right? We don't have to go into the movie theater now. We have them in our homes, I'll tell you. So those lists of externals really don't work. In John 2, 15 through 17, which we just read, 1 John 2, 15 through 17, he uses the term world, cosmos, six times in three verses. Six times. So understanding the term is important. God's trying to get something across to us. And there are at least three meanings of this word cosmos uh, in the New Testament or world. There's the physical world. The planet that we live on, the earth or God's creation, nature, the trees, the lakes, the sky, and everything combined that we see in Acts 17, 24, where we're told the God who made the cosmos, the world, and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temple made of hands. He's outside of that which he made. He's other than what he created. But that can't be the meaning of John, where he tells us not to love the world. He's not telling us not to love what God created. 
In fact, in Psalm 19, we read that the heavens declare his glory. And in Psalm 104, it extols the whole psalm is about the beauty of what God created and his care of it. I often reminded myself when I lived in California, there are some amazing homes in California. (laughs) Uh, You would drive down uh, the freeway heading towards Pasadena out of the L.A. basin, (laughs) filled with smog. And you'd be going to a little bit clearer area and you'd see these mansions on the hillsides. Just astoundingly beautiful places. And I just remind myself, if we can see things like that here and have things like that here on this sin-cursed earth, what is heaven going to be like? And I often remind myself when I'm in the most beautiful of beautiful places, and I've been in some amazing places in this earth, this is all cursed by God. What is heaven going to be like? And that's a good way to look at these kind of things. So he can't possibly be meaning we should not love what God has created. It's beautiful, much of it, marred though it be. So it must be something else. There's a second meaning, maybe it's this one, and that's the element of humanity. And the term cosmos includes the term humanity or the element of humanity. Take the most popular verse in the Bible, John 3.16, God so loved the cosmos, the world. Same word. And that means humanity. The term there refers to human beings created in God's image. And if you look at the context, the greater context, you go back a couple verses from 3.16 and you've got Jesus talking to Nicodemus who was a what? He was a Pharisee. He was a Jew. But in chapter 4, we have the, the woman at the well who was a what? A Gentile. And so God's love is to all people, saved and unsaved. I know that some of my Reformed friends are turning over in their graves right now. But I believe that with all my heart. I believe that with all my heart. The call of the gospel is universal. It goes out to all, whosoever will. Never mind that it's only the elect that will believe. Now, I made friends with them again. (laughs) But we see that God loves people. It's quite clear we're to love people, even as God loves people, all people. The Jews hated the Samaritans, but Jesus loved the Samaritan woman, shared the gospel with her. And Jesus commanded his followers in Luke 6 to love your enemies. Love your enemies and do good and lend to them, expecting nothing in return. The Jews were big on usury. That's charging a lot of percentage points on the money that they lent out. And Jesus is saying, don't expect to get anything back from them. Just lend to them freely. Love your enemies. He goes on to say, why? Because it's glorifying and reflecting God when you act like that to those who don't act like that to you. He says, for he, God himself, is kind to the ungrateful and evil men. I would be one of those ungrateful, evil men for 19 years of my life. I'm so glad that God loved me. So cosmos can't be used in at least those two ways. 
James is not telling us not to be friends with humanity. And John is not telling us to not love humanity or the earth. In John, the first chapter, verses 9 and 10, we see this term used in both ways. It's really interesting. He says, there was a true light which, coming into the cosmos, the physical world, enlightens every man. He was in the cosmos, physical world, and the cosmos, physical world, was made by him, Jesus, and the cosmos, world of humanity, did not know him. Isn't that interesting? All within two verses, he ties that up for us. But there's a third meaning of cosmos, the world, and that is a spiritual system. It is an invisible spiritual system that is not of God and does not promote the glory of God. It is not God-centered in the things it promotes and the way it operates, and it's all around us. We use this meaning in our everyday speech when we talk about the world of sports or maybe something closer to our hearts, the world of fishing, right? Or the world of medicine. In this way, we can understand that the world and that idea is ideas and activities focused around a specific thing. That's the meaning of cosmos in this sense, but when we talk about cosmos in this sense as being the world system, we're talking about one that is motivated by Satan and filled with ideas and activities that are all opposed to God. And this is what both James and John refers to when they say, don't be friends with it and don't love it. C.J. Mahaney wrote a book on worldliness. And he, I like C.J. because he's, he's kind of like, Cookies are on the lowest shelf. And he says, worldliness is to gratify and exalt oneself to the exclusion of God. It rejects God's rule and replaces it with our own. It relates, uh, it elevates our own sinful desires above God's commands. It exalts our own opinions above God's truth. And that, that's worldliness. It's, it's more than just not hanging around with people that dance or listen to certain types of music or wear certain types of clothes. Another definition says it's being attached to, engrossed in, or preoccupied with the things of this temporal life. The Puritans used to call it having inordinate affections. I I really like that term inordinate affections. We all have affections, things that we love, things that we are drawn to, but they can become inordinate or overly excessive. And when they become inordinate, then you are moving towards sinfulness. One biblical counselor from the UK identified inordinate affections like this. What you want is good. It's good, but you just want it too much. And you've started to build your world and identity around that instead of your Savior. 
and the gospel. Now that's getting down to heart level stuff. Yeah, very common areas could draw us into worldliness. How about money? Okay, let me hit the easy topic first. <laughs> it's easy to forget that the Lord your God is he who is giving you power to make wealth, Deuteronomy 8.18. All of our wealth comes from God. It is the blessing of the Lord that makes us rich, Proverbs 10.22. But how easy is it to take that God-given wealth to ourselves? James will teach on wealth later in chapter 5. We won't go too much into that. But when it comes to money, it's a matter of heart attitude and whether you value your money above God or not. See, we're created to glorify God and enjoy him forever, right? So every element, every aspect, every faculty of our humanity is to be glorifying God. That includes our money, our wealth. When this world's wealth dominates your thoughts and life, then you have become worldly in your use of money. And lest you think that only the wealthy can be worldly in their attitudes and so forth, I have witnessed very, very poor people that are very worldly in their attitude towards possessions. The Taliabo. They had nothing. They could put everything they own on their back in a sarong, and they were some of the most covetous, envious, worldly people in the world that I had ever seen. It amazed me because it's not about the amounts that you have. It's about your heart, right? Does it dominate your thought? You see, some are so focused on the little that they have that it's all-consuming. They become engrossed or completely preoccupied with it. Instead of Colossians 3.2, which tells us to set our affections, our mind, on the things above and not on things on the earth. So whether you be rich or whether you be poor, in the area of finances, you can become very worldly if that becomes your main focus and that's all you're thinking about. How about marriage? Here's another one. Nothing wrong with marriage. I, I'm married been married for quite a while, and marriage is good. But one pastor relays this, and I, I just, I love it. One of the most common things that I run into as a pastor and counselor in someone who is desperately wanting to have a good marriage, a good and a godly marriage. Is that wrong? No, of course we want to glorify God through our marriages. It's a great, and it's a biblical desire, but our sinful flesh then can take that desire and twist it into an ugly demand. Listen to this. This is the munitions of the heart. This is the way our hearts operate, folks. So that we start waking up every day with that as our main focus, refusing to please God or even be content or trust God with anything short of exactly the kind of good marriage and godly marriage that I'm hoping for. You see what happened there? It's those pleasures again, right? And such an inordinate affection leads to bitterness and depression and often sinful behavior as a person begins to shut down. But idolatry is really what is the root of the problem 
And it's because their sense of joy and well-being is all riding on that one all-consuming great desire or hope. And not having it, they're distressed, depressed, dejected. And so it begins to affect everybody around them, especially those closest to them. You see, our idols take a huge toll on those closest to us. Isn't that exactly what James was talking about when I talked about the hidden war? You lust and you do not have. You're envious and you cannot obtain. You ask and you do not receive. Why? Because you ask with wrong motives. And what are the motives? So that you may spend it on your pleasures. Deep down here. Ban the thought that worldliness is dancing. It's so much more. In fact, I dare say that maybe some of those fundamentalists of which I was one got it wrong. And maybe it was a ploy of the devil to get their thinking on these externals so much that the real heart issue of worldliness completely looked over. And isn't it true, right? When you've got a checkoff list of things not to do, we can, we can check off a lot of those things. We cannot dance. We can not play poker or play with cards. I used to love that one, okay? Shouldn't play with cards with jokers. So I can play with Uno cards. <laughs> yep. I can play Dutch Blitz. Yep. But I can't play with cards that have jokers in it because that's worldly. Isn't it silly? We can, jot, we can check off those boxes and become filled with spiritual pride and claim, I'm not worldly. I don't do that stuff. But the heart, where's the heart? Now, I was in Pennsylvania for a while. That is the, the center of the world for fundamentalism, as far as I'm concerned. And it was a shock to me because I heard of something I'd never heard about before and I, Christianity was a shock to me, believe, you know, when I first got saved. It was all so new. But they had a thing there that was one of those list things, and maybe my wife remembers. You couldn't have mi- mixed bathing. Any, anybody ever hear of mixed bathing? Mary, it's the only one. Mike, Mike, he's a fundy from way back. Okay, mixed bathing is when girls and boys bathe, uh, swim together. It's not bathing. It's not in a bathtub. <laughs> the first time I heard it, I thought, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I get that, you know. But then when I found out what it really was, I'm like, really? You can't swim together? Oh, no. No. Then, then one time I, I was, this was in southern Minnesota, okay? Not even south, south, south. Southern Minnesota. I was called to speak at a camp. This is when I was doing deputation work, getting ready to go to the field. And I was called to speak at a, a, a camp down in southern Minnesota. I went down there, and man, did I blow it. There was a fellow that was from a staunch fundamentalist uh, seminary that was kind of heading up the camp. And I came out after my morning sessions, and it was afternoon. I was able to go down by the lake and so forth. And I had shorts on, flip-flops, and a tank top. He promptly grabbed me by the arm, took me back into the cabin and said, you need to clothe yourself, man. I said, <laughs> I mean, I was totally blindsided. I had no idea. To him, wearing a tank top like that 
was sinful and wearing shorts. I'm like, wow, okay. So I was very hot the rest of that time, <laughs> but that was fine. And then I went into training, and I'll never forget the blessed teacher that told me about how in some parts of the United States that it is sinful, it's considered sinful to read the comic strip on Sunday. You, you should not read the comics on Sunday. And he says, but you're all training to be cross-cultural missionaries, and I just want to tell you that our German brothers and sisters heard about that, and they cried because they were so distressed over it that the tears rolled down the cigar that they were smoking, and it dropped into their, their mug of beer. That's where those lists belong and that kind of craziness, right? That's not right. And that's a very, very easy way to escape and think of ourselves more highly than we ought because we've checked off those boxes. So, be careful that external behavior does not replace the internal love and dedication to the person, the Lord Jesus Christ, who calls us his bride, It's much deeper than that. Now, James goes on to say, Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. There's a subtle transformation process here that takes place in the heart. Notice that the person wishes to be a friend of the world. It's anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world. It is a decision of one's will after deliberation. That's exactly what that means, one who wishes to be a friend of the world. Whenever a person is lured by the world's attractions and it makes their decision to befriend the world for that allurement, they become guilty of unfaithfulness to God and worldliness. You see how insidious this is, right? I mean, there is nothing wrong with enjoying the things that God has given to us freely. But there is everything wrong if those things get their flesh hooks into our heart and we have to have them or we fight to maintain them and retain them. Take a home, for instance. A beautiful home. There's nothing wrong with having a lovely home if God blesses you with with the wealth to buy a home or somehow or other he blesses you with a home and, and you cultivate that home and you have people in and you show hospitality. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing sinful in that. But if that's all you live for and that's what your waking moments are consumed with of how to get more cool things in that home, then that becomes sin. And that's worldliness. See, God is no longer first in that life. And the allegiance is to something other than God. And God has given us all things freely to enjoy. But don't let those things become a God to you. You see, children that turn out well, we want our kids to turn out well, can become a very worldly passion in the heart of mom's. Careers, we set a mark. I want to be right here when I'm 30 years old. I'll never forget Christopher Parkening, Segovia's heir apparent in classical guitars, okay? He had a goal to be a millionaire by the time he was 30. He met it, 
And he was depressed beyond measure. He could not believe he had met his life goals and he was 30. Now what? And God marvelously reached down and saved him. But his wife divorced him because he became a believer. <laughs> Amazing, right? The things that we put our hearts on. How about, how about an ability to be up to a certain standard? You know, I, wa- I, I want to be this good at this. This, this hits uh, young people when they're in athletics and sports. And, you know, and, and they just become consumed with that. And it, it, it captures all their thinking and all their expectations and all their time and everything is devoted to That's worldliness. Is there anything wrong with being in athletics? No, it's good. It's healthy. But God must be first, right? You see, because they become the enemy of God, when they wish these kind of things, then it says they become the enemy of God. The NSB has makes himself an enemy of God. Sometimes we blow right through these, these verses, don't we? We read them, it's like they don't sink in. Here is a decisive process. A person deliberates over it, decides he wishes for this thing, and then he becomes an enemy of God. The Greek grammar comes to play here because the verbal tense is in the present which denotes a continuous condition. That's why I say it's not a believer. James is calling out the unbelievers in their midst. But believers can drop into this. You know you have. I sure have. The choice was deliberately made. The state is a continuous one of enmity with God. There is no room for neutrality here. You either love the world or you love God. And I want to give you the greatest illustration of this in the Bible that I can think of, it's Lot's wife. Lot's wife. Jesus, look over at Luke 17 real quick. Luke 17, and I want to begin at verse 28. It was the same as happened In the days of Lot, they were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, and they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must go down to take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. Do you have just a little bit of an understanding of martyrdom? See, this is what Christian martyrdom is about. They count not their own lives dear to them, but the truth is more dear to them than their life. Why? Because they're eternal. They have a spiritual perspective. They're not worldly. You see, the lesson of Lot's wife warns that we should beware of where we lay our treasures. Matthew 6.21 declares where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Lot's wife had the same revelation of God's will as her husband. She heard the angels tell him what to do. 
And though she fled together with her family, her backwards glance betrayed a heart still tied to Sodom. She's like many who go along with God's people, but in the end find that love for the world. In this case, it was her world, Sodom, outweighed their love for God. I can't tell you how many people I know personally who began well. I can't tell you how many missionaries I know who began well and who are shipwrecked now because they've been consumed with the world and the things of the world and they left God as their first love. We also learn from Lot's wife that though many may appear to follow the truth, half-hearted religion ends in destruction. Guard your heart, for out of it flow the wellsprings of life, beloved. Lot's wife was a part of the family. She lived with Lot and her daughter. She observed Lot in the gates of the city, and she no doubt knew all about Lot's rescue by Uncle Abraham. Abraham was called what? The friend of God. (laughs) But her profession was empty of content, and when the real proof, which was her obedience to the command of God, came about, she chose to look back at what her heart was really longing for, and she suffered the consequences of her love for the world. No wonder Jesus said, remember Lot's wife. There is a danger also of an empty profession. Lot's wife is a great example of that. Demas would have to be the New Testament illustration of this, or Lot's wife's male counterpart. In 2 Timothy 4.10, we read, For Demas, having loved this present world, just what John says not to do, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. He deserted Paul, the choice servant of God, and thereby turned his back on God. Why? Because he loved this present world. Man, strong stuff. The love of the world is no small matter. Guard yourself. Guard yourself. James identified the ideas and activities that are worldly ideas and activities that are hostile toward God. The word hostile means enmity or or hatred. In Romans 8, 7, the heart is identified and attitude of heart as a mind that is set on the flesh and that is hostile towards God. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And John says that the one who loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. James already equated faith in God as friendship with God when he used the illustration of Abraham's justification over in chapter 2, verse 23. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now look at this intimate relationship that Abraham had with God and was called the friend of God. The friend of God. Now today, more than ever, the lines are being drawn between those who claim the name of Christ and the world. And I feel like a a prophet, I'm sorry, I feel like a watchman (laughs) telling you this stuff. People listen to what's happening to our fellow believers all over the world. It's coming down the pike. It is. I'm not even saying if. It's when. Okay? We are on the wrong side 
of the world. Do you know that? (laughs) Christ lived a perfect life, one of love and service to humanity, healing the sick, raising the dead, and they crucified him. What about us? What about us? You see, we have a front row seat to the blatant differences between the friends of God and those who are friendly with the world. Consider how stark the contrast has become. I'll just give you a couple of instances. Those who are for life in the womb, I would be one of those. Over against those who claim to be pro-choice when the choice is for self without regard for the unborn child, which is murdered. How about those who believe and preserve marriage between a man and a woman as divinely established by God? It's a creation mandate. Opposed are those who promote cohabitation and same-sex marriage as valid relationships. Very clear demarcation. You can't, they don't kind of overlap anywhere. How about those who defend gender distinction according to physical biology? I'd be one of those too. A man is a man and a woman is a woman. A female is a female and a male is a male. Over against those who promote and celebrate transgenderism. Does that mean I hate all transgender people? Absolutely not. People are made in God's image. They are lost, they are confused, and they are deceived. What they need is the gospel of Jesus Christ to become who God created them to be those who glorify him and enjoy him forever. The same with the whole LGBTQ community. Just because I disagree with their philosophy of life and and worldview does not mean I hate them as human beings. But they won't see it that way, will they? On none of these points will that be seen like that. None. In the recent past, whether you count it to be 60 40 or 20 years, that would be the 1960s, the 1980s, or the 2000s, there has been a very distinctive division drawn between Christian worldview and a secular worldview. And secular means attitudes, activities, and other things that have no religious or spiritual basis. That's the definitory dictionary of secular. You see, We do now live in a post-Christian world. We do now live in a post-truth world. We do now live in a post-God world. And we're on the wrong side because we believe in all those things. And it's okay. It's okay. I want you to look around because these are your brothers and sisters who may be feeding you or housing you in days to come. Look at the people in the Ukraine. Look at the people in Russia. People do have needs, no doubt. But we need, our biggest and greatest need is God. If a person does not have food to eat, they will not be able to seek spiritual realities. That's, that's perpetrated by something in the world called Maslow's Five Levels of Human Need. You've maybe heard of those. It begins with physical needs. You've got to meet these physical needs and have food and clothing and stuff. And, and then you can move on to safety and security. And then you can move on to love and belonging and, and self-esteem, confidence and achievement. And at the pinnacle of the pyramid, because it's a pyramid and the basis is physical needs first must be met, at the, at the very pinnacle is self-actualization. 
the fulfillment of being human, fulfilled human potential, autonomy. God's nowhere involved in that at all. In fact, he completely inverts that (laughs) pyramid and he starts with, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added on to you. Right? That's the way God rules. That's what the gospel brings to people. And that's what we want. And that's how we can guard our hearts against worldliness and becoming a friend of the world, loving the world, and becoming hostile to God and an enemy of God. Put God first. You can do that on a daily basis with choices that you make. Am I putting God first or am I putting my own desires first, my own wants, my own needs first? How is what I'm doing, how are the choices that I'm making, are they glorifying to God in some shape or form? You see, I glorify God when I cut my lawn because I think it brings great glory to people that look at my freshly cut lawn and I have a lawnmower that, that it's got a leveler, it's so cool, and, and my lawn looks so nice. It brings pleasure to people. I'm glorifying God. Plus, I get the joy of riding that lawnmower for about two hours because i got a big yard. It's all to God's glory. Now, if he put me in an apartment, okay. I've been there before too. You see, it doesn't matter. It's your heart. Where's your heart? Where's your heart? And that's all I have to say today. And we're going to go to pride next week. I just felt like bringing pride into it today would, well, number one, we'd be here till five. But, you know, I, I don't want to do that today. We'll, we'll get to the other portions next week. You just look at that, that what's coming. There, there's a lot there. But it's all good because it's all James trying to pull his people back to the center and worshiping God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for the clear teaching of how we can guard against being worldly, Lord, and letting this world get its flesh hooks into us and pull us away from God, away from you, the lover of our souls, our redeemer, the one who gave your life for us. Oh, Father, forgive us for being tempted and drawn away. And Father, help us to help one another stand the path that's true and live a righteous and a godly life and one that brings you much glory. Let us do it corporately as a church, we pray. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.